Little girl, happiness is within you. So unlock the chains from your heart and let yourself grow like the sweet flower you are. I know the answer. Just spread your wings and set yourself free. Love to you forever. Jimi Hendrix He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Oh yeah. Hello everybody and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it's the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook. This is a book and uh, has become the only, as far as I know, source of Silver Linings Playbook universe fan fiction. Uh, this week we got a, a story that is a lot more robust. I felt like last week was just not very good because I've been busy writing a lot of other things. And this one... Uh, just sort of developed. I'm pretty happy with it. It's different <laughs> because it's it's a totally different genre than I normally write. So it might be terrible. But then again, they pretty much all have been. So let's get started. I had just turned 19 a week before I arrived in Portland. I had taken a gap year out of high school before deciding to attend the university there. I'm not sure what attracted me to it other than the distance from the only life I had ever known. I needed something new, a fresh start. I had heard about weird things about Seattle and LA. So, of course, I decided on the even more alternative city of Portland. Portland is sort of the Austin or Asheville of Oregon. I find it weird when the only way people have to describe their city is by relating it to another city that that person they're describing it to may not have even visited. I don't know how much about the world outside of Philadelphia. To tell the truth, I don't even know that much about Philadelphia. My family had taken a vacation to the Great Lakes one year when I was 12, and my brother Jake was 10. I also think it's funny when people describe siblings as older or younger, and then say their age. My younger brother Jake, who is two years my junior, is younger, and by two years. I'm 19, he's 17. But the only age that young people want to be is 21. Then, 25. None of it really matters until you can collect security, social security after that. It was overcast the day that I arrived at Portland International Airport. It took 12 hours to get there, but only six of it was spent in the air. I had had a five-hour layover in Dulles, which was less than an hour away, as if the world was giving me one more chance to rethink my choices, or maybe to enjoy the start of an adventure twice. Either way, I made it to Portland. The first thing I noticed was Portland was rather normal at first glance. The hipster mecca is deeply ingrained into the culture of the Northwest, but modernization doesn't discriminate by a geographical location. I picked up a pack of organic cigarettes from a store at the airport. I could have waited half an hour to get into the city, but I never liked starting a journey without all the essentials. Standing at the baggage claim carousel, I realized you can tell a lot about a city by looking at the luggage of its inhabitants. Guitar cases covered in stickers, wool-woven sacks, rucksacks, which no doubt belong to the kind of people who wake up before sunset, even on a Saturday, because there are too few days in life to accomplish all the extra things. My best friend Ronnie had moved to Portland right out of high school and had quickly taken to the City of Roses. 
He agreed to let me stay with him because school wasn't starting for another month, but I wanted to come and live in the city before I settled into a life of academia. Pat, Ronnie said as he answered the door. How was he here in Portugal? Perfect, I said. I didn't want to leave. That's good, huh? Did you meet any women? Out of habit, I almost answered that question honestly, then stopped myself short of spouting out a long anecdote about the flower girl that sold marigold bouquets on a street corner near the apartment of the family I was staying with. She greeted me every morning, bon dia, as I walked by, and it was only two days before I was leaving that I had finally gotten the nerve to ask if she would join me at a local cafe for coffee. I find it funny how so many refer to coffee shops as cafes when it's also the word for the beverage with which they primarily are known for. Like calling a restaurant that serves hamburgers, beefs. The way my overanalytical brain ruminates on these colloquial ironies of literal translations is akin to the analogous comparisons of cities to cities. Bom dia, said the flower girl that morning I walked by, the same as all the mornings I had walked by but different as well. Hola, menina, I said back to the girl. She laughed, and I thought that maybe I instantly became embarrassed that perhaps even my superficial command of Portuguese was not as sufficient as I thought. Menina is a little girl, she said. Her smile was enchanting, and as sure as I was that my face was a shade of red in that moment, my fingers tingled in the tips, and I wanted so desperately to try to make a first impression again. I am Amosia, said the girl. Pleased to meet you, Amosa, I said. No, she giggled again. Ah, uh, Mosia is a young woman. Menina is a little girl. Do I look like a little girl? It was a perfect flirt given to an imperfect receiver. My mind raced to solve the riddle of whether I had actually offended her, or if in fact she was just making a simple conversation more complex, as often happens when two people with a mutual attraction meet for the first time. I'm Pat, I said. Pat Peoples. Peoples. Like person Peoples, she answered. Her Portuguese accent softened her fluent English. It was like listening to Sweet Cursive, writing the melody to a perfect song. I'm Tiffany, she said. Tiffany Marta. Miss Marta, would you like to go get a cup of coffee? I would love that, but I can't leave until I sell all these marigolds. She motioned to the basket of flowers she cradled under her sun-kissed arm, like a mother holding a newborn baby. I was going to the library this morning, I said. I won't be long. Perhaps when I return you will have sold all your wares. My wares? She asked. Even when she was asking a question, her voice was like a little prayer forgiving the sins of my soul. Your flowers. When I come back here, perhaps you will have sold your flowers. Then, would you go with me? See, Mr. Peoples. I will work very hard. Tiffany's face stayed foremost in my mind, 
and every step I took towards the library felt like a betrayal of everything I wanted in that moment, which was to be with the flower girl. This must have been what Tony felt like after he met Maria in the West Side Story. Marta, I sang to myself. I just met a girl named Tiffany Marta. The words didn't fit the lyrics, which seemed appropriate with how misplaced I often felt in my own body, living a life that had been painted by numbers up to the two months before I had graduated and told my parents that I was going to defer my college acceptance and take a year to journey through Europe, only to settle in Portugal, if only for a few months. The library was pretty empty. An older woman was sitting in a chair by the window. She wasn't reading anything in particular. She just sat there, unmoving, like she was part of the furniture, herself. A mother and a child were sitting at one of the tables, the mother reading a magazine, and the child making the most of not having his mother's full attention at the moment. The library didn't have many books in English, and so I had to spend my early days perusing picture-heavy periodicals, trying to teach myself the language. One day, a librarian noticed that I had been wandering aimlessly for longer than normal without picking anything up. I told him how I didn't speak the language, and he showed me a small section of books from around the world. The few books they had in English were mostly classics, with several other well-known titles from American authors that would one day be classics, but whose authors had not been dead long enough for time to bestow upon their works the title of classic. The Call of the Wild, Gone with the Wind, The Bonfire of the Vanities, and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, to name a few. The Bell Jar, the Great Gatsby. Those would be my next two, I thought, but I had settled on The Sun Also Rises. I wasn't a particular fan of Hemingway, even though he's widely considered to be one of the greatest American authors. My literary preferences tended to skew towards lighter affair. I settled into a chair with Ernest and proceeded to kill an hour, all the while ruminating on Marigold Marta. The white dress that she wore while selling flowers, made her look angelic, like an ingenue of a story I wanted to tell. I tried to concentrate on my book. I only had a couple chapters left, but my hour spent reading was largely comprised of me realizing that I had been rereading the same pages over and over. My mind wandered, much as the trajectory of my formative years, with great intent to circumnavigate foreign lands, but quickly becoming attached to anything that felt safe in the vast wild of passing time. Hours up, I thought, closing the book and returning it to the shelf. It was five till, but I was rounding up. After all, the time was growing closer to a potential date with my flower girl, and it also grew closer to my eventual departure from this wonderful country and part of my life. I would return home with little more than experiences and stories that would mean nothing to anyone but me, and yet, that is the only value anything can truly have. I was one block out, and there she was, the angel of the morning, her long dark hair reflecting all the sun and hope a day could contain, like a beacon drawing me in. Looks like you have five more to go, I said. Guess it's just not meant to be. I was now attempting to flirt, however... To her, it probably felt like a student trying to challenge their master only long before they were anywhere near ready. I suppose you're right, she said. 
Looks like I'll have to keep working. What if I bought your flowers? I asked. What if I just said I'd get coffee with you to make a sale? She replied. Then that's a gamble I'd be willing to make. Good. The price is one Turkish coffee at Fabrica. Fabrica, I thought to myself. It might be cheaper if I just bought the flowers, although I'd never tell her that. Fabrica it is, Amosa, I said. Fifteen minutes later, we were sitting on a patio. A small black cup containing a liquid as dark as her eyes sat steaming in front of Tiffany. I was sipping my glorified milkshake that barely passed as a cup of coffee, but was recommended to me by the barista when I couldn't make up my mind. The suggestion seemed more about what was the most popular drink with the people that looked about my age than actually choosing something I might like. I squinted as I sipped the liquid candy. Too sweet? Tiffany said. But all of those are too sweet. I like the Turkish. It's old and bitter. I didn't have to sell all my flowers, she said. You didn't? I was a little shocked. I just wanted to see how desperate you were, she said. She looked pleased with this confession, like a thief who had just executed a flawless caper. Well, do I seem desperate? The right amount of desperate. I like my men like puppy dogs. You know, I've always been told I have a lot of puppy-like qualities. She giggled and smiled, and I only hoped that, as fluent in English as she seemed, that all my feelings were being translated as clearly as the conversation seemed to be going. We sat there for what felt like days, though it was probably closer to an hour. She told me about her family, how her father had been a soldier, her mother a young nun who left the convent to be with him. I told her about life in the States, and how most people from the States simply call it America, but I was pretentious and always trying to be culturally aware as a crutch for my crippling anxiety about not even being intellectual enough. After coffee, she offered to show me around, and I admitted that even though I had been in the country for a number of months, I failed to experience any diversity in my rather sloppy attempts at tourism, and so I accepted. We went on a walk, and she gave me a kind of experience that only a true local can. It was a trip through the land, but also through her personal history. The cathedral where she had been baptized, the secondary school that she had attended, a statue in the park that she had tripped into as a child and knocked out a tooth, a tooth which had clearly grown back to complete what was now a source of the most beautiful smiles I had ever seen. Later, I rented an electric scooter with the money I told her I would have paid for her last five flowers with, and we cruised around the city, weaving recklessly between the maze of vehicles and pedestrians. She held tight around my waist, and I realized the faster I went, the more firm her arms became, inspiring me to push every one of the 20 miles an hour the little machine could handle. Evening came, and I knew her time was drawing to a close. We sat on a bench in the park and watched the people pass, making up stories about where they might be coming from and where they could possibly be going. He's a professional dog walker, I said, as a man walked by who was wearing a tire that was completely inappropriate for the slow athletic activity he was trying to convince himself he was engaged in. 
It looks like he lost his dog and he's trying to chase it down. He used to be a famous musician, said Tiffany. She pointed to a middle-aged balding man who was wearing a business suit and looked like he preferred charts and graphs over guitars and drums. He got married to a roadie, settled down, and now he works in finance. Our game continued, and the stories got wilder with each successive tale. The sun started to go down behind us, and the silhouettes of the park trees cast shadows that looked like they were growing as the day left, creating a forest of night. When the last passerby had left, she leaned over and rested her head on my shoulder. I wanted to stay in this moment forever, and I didn't speak for fear that any sound or movement on my part would break the silence that was binding her to me. Finally, she sat up. I need to get going, she said. This was my favorite day I've had here, I said. This was a wonderful time. I looked her in the eyes and I dug deep for every ounce of courage I had to lean in and kiss her. It was a small and sweet, so that if she didn't seem receptive, I could play it off as my attempt at being European. The moment our lips broke apart, she leaned in, and with far more deliberate intent returned the affection tenfold, one-upping me like she had in everything we had done. Can I have your number? I asked. But you won't be here much longer, she said. I knew she was right, and it would just be setting ourselves up for heartbreak if we were to play any more bets on this hand. I don't know what the future holds, I said. I do know that this moment is so perfect, and I don't want to leave this moment with no possibility of ever being connected to it again, even if it's only the smallest chance. You can have my address, she said. Write me letters. If you call me, and we never get to see each other, everything will fade. We'll fast become just another set of contacts in each other's phones that go longer and longer between talks until they never happen. If you write me letters, there will always be an excitement in even the smallest thing we have to say, and an anticipation that fills every day of waiting for a response. I mean, we could do both, I said. Write and call? She didn't say anything to my suggestion, but pulled out a small piece of paper and a pen from her purse and wrote down an address on a slip of paper and handed it to me. And your address? I wrote down mine and handed her back the paper, disappointed that this was probably some scheme to not have to tell me that she knew we would never see each other again, but she was letting me down easy. My flight back to the States was far too short. I felt like the flight time was mocking how easily I could be separated from the girl of my dreams. My parents were there to meet me at the airport. Jake asked if I had met any hot girls, and I didn't tell him because it hurt a little to think of her, even though our short time together had been nothing but magic. I wrote her daily for the next month straight, and she had been correct that when you write for someone, you can feel so connected in that moment of putting words to paper, it often feels closer than talking, even if it's only a one-sided conversation you're having in your own head. I waited and about a week, I checked his mail to see if I had gotten anything back. 
Nothing. One week was probably too soon. That's not nearly enough time for a letter to cross the ocean, then come all the way back stakeside, and that's not even accounting for the time it would take for her to get around to writing it. A second week passed, and still no letters. By the third week, I found that I was checking the mail more often than I was sending it. The fourth week came and went. I kept writing, though not as often as I had when I started. I'd send a letter each Monday, mostly following the same format, telling her how great a time I had had on our sole date, a quick update about what was going on in my life, and the hope she was doing well, but never a request for a response, even though I'm sure the desire for one was immersed in the subtext of what I did write. Two months later, I felt a little angry at myself for how heartbroken I could feel over something that never really was. A perfect day is just that, a day, and not an indication of a better life to follow. I tried to bury myself in work, but there were small reminders of her everywhere I seemed to go. A painting of Marigold hung on the wall of a restaurant that I went to for lunch, a TV commercial with a middle-aged businessman dreaming of being young and in a rock band, and a Turkish family moved in across the street like a, the coffee that I have never known anyone to drink but her. This is probably why I now found myself standing in front of Ronnie, trying to convince my best friend that I was excited to be starting a new chapter of my life, about to go to university, 2,800 miles from home, when in reality, all I could think about was the place that I wasn't. My home in Philly, ironically, being almost exact halfway point between Portland and her. I settled in and tried to have the best time I could with Ronnie. He took me all around and showed me the sights, got me oriented to what would be the next four years of my life. I still think of her all the time in my dreams and whenever my mind wanders, just like my gap year self. Three weeks passed and I was getting, making all my last minute preparations to start school in a week enjoying the comforting distraction that being busy offered when Ronnie came home and told me there was a letter for me in the mailbox. My mind was immediately at war with my heart that somehow hoped that Tiffany had stalked me and discovered my new address, which was worlds away from the one that I had left a couple of months ago, and my brain telling me not to be too excited because there was no possible way for this letter to be what I wanted it to be so badly. Ronnie handed it to me, and I was instantly disappointed to see my mother's handwriting on the envelope. Thanks, bud, I said, and I wandered back to read it in my room, secretly hoping that somehow it would magically transform into something else. I placed it on the bedside table with plans to read it later, knowing that there was no way for my mother to know how disappointing it was to receive a letter from her. It wasn't her fault. In this day and age of connectivity, mail is often a fun reminder of simpler times, but of all the things it would never be to me. I decided to take a nap, since dreaming still offered me the only, if insufficient, reminder of ungranted wishes. I woke up at six. My stomach was growling. Apparently, I'd slept all day, and it was my body's need for food that won out over my mind's need for the imaginary secession of longing. I looked over at the letter from my mom and opened it. 
There were two pieces of paper, and I began to read the first one. Dear Patrick, Your father and I hope you're doing well and are so excited for you to start college next week. Jake is starting his applications and said he's thinking about spending a year like you did. Enclosed is a letter that you received here. I'm sorry that I opened it, but I didn't even finish reading the letter from my mom. I flung the first note to the side, revealing a second letter that I had assumed was just the second page of this note. At first glance, it was rather brief, but the handwriting was cute, feminine amalgamation of print and cursive. Before I could even read the first word, the shape of the letters heightened my pulse. It began. Querido Patrick Peoples, I regret only giving you my address because I was afraid that you might not write, and I'm so glad that you did. I'm sorry it took me so long to respond to you. The day we spent together was so perfect. It hurt for me to imagine connecting with you in any way that was less perfect than that, and so I didn't. As for why I did not give you my phone number, I wanted to see how desperate you were. I've received all your letters and have read them all many times. You are the right amount of desperate. If you ever find yourself on this side of the world, I hope you will find your way back to Lisbon. I myself am considering attending school in the States, or America, as you might say. You were so perfect on that day, and I'm so weird. I'm glad you weren't repulsed by my awkwardness. Please continue to be in touch, and I will too. Bejinosh Tiffany Marta. Below it was written her phone number. All right, thank you for tuning in to the Silver Linings Playcast. I've been your host, Jamie Ward. Uh, we will be here this and every week. Or uh, wait, what do I say? What's my outro? Uh, no, tune in next week for more fan fiction from the Silver Linings Playbook universe. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening, and we will see you down the road and Excelsior. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest, the other's husband is dead. That's why they're so all messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Oh yeah.